HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. All right. And welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we are going to be speaking with um, uh, Ferd Hefner, who is uh, the founding staff member of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and somebody whose name I see uh, all over the place in sort of um, progressive food annals, shall we say. Um, he has been a leader in the sustainable agricultural community for over 30 years. Ferd led the NSACs, that's the National Sustainable Agricultural Co- Coalition, federal policy work from 1988 to through 2016, and now serves in a mentoring and advisory role to the coalition. Prior to his work with NSAC, for nearly a decade, he represented Interfaith Action for Economic Justice and its predecessor, the Interreligious Task Force on U.S. Food Policy on Federal Farm Food and Development Policies. He has consulted with many NGOs and has served on numerous USDA advisory committees. Welcome to the program, Ferd. I'm, I'm honored to have you on the show. I really am. And I'm wondering why it's taken me so long. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Happy to be with you. All right. That's great. So first of all, I think you should probably tell people about the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Yeah, we are the way that the sustainable agriculture community across the country tries to get uh, policy reform on food and ag policy done in Washington, D.C. We're grassroots-based. We have over 125 member organizations from coast to coast that do their own thing uh, at the state and local level and programmatically on the farm and uh, in research and many different areas, Um, but they... thing they have in common is joining together um, to help impact uh, federal policy at the national level through the coalition. Right. And that's what we do and been doing since 1988. So you guys are basically a lobbying organization. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. We, we tend to use the word advocacy, but we're, yeah. we're happy to use the word lobbying. I, I, I think you might as well. I mean, nobody else seems to be ashamed of lobbying. Why should you be? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and what's amazing to me is that, as your bio mentions, the organization is over thirty years old, and at the time, agricultural reform was was hardly on the radar, at least for me, um, and I think probably not so much for many other Americans. Um, um, what what 
what prompted you guys to, to, to fire this up 30 years ago? I mean, we weren't really thinking about these things. Yeah, or maybe it wasn't as, as much in the broad public consciousness. Um, mm. Just autobiographically, um, I started in this business as a congressional intern a little over mm. 40 years ago, and the first two assignments I had was to try to figure out how to fund and implement the National Farm to Consumer Direct Marketing Act and the Urban Gardening Act. Um, which were mid-1970s laws that Congress passed. So, you know, there have been things going on for quite a period of time, but maybe not at the same level that we see today. But the start of NSAC was really, uh, in large part, uh, fashioned out of the farm crisis of the 1980s when we had record number of farm foreclosures and bankruptcies and farmer suicides and all that went with that huge depression in the agricultural economy, and farmers were desperately looking for the way forward. Um, and, you know, the official line um, from many in the field were, was, you know, get bigger, get out, right. get really large uh, so that you could get by on small volumes. And I think family farms in general and small and mid-scale family farms in particular were looking for a different approach, one that emphasized decreasing input costs and increasing uh, market gate potential of value-added and and specialty items in agriculture. And um, that's really the group that put this all together. It was farmers seeking those kinds of options um, coming out of the farm crisis so that they could continue um, to uh, have strong family farms and strong rural communities out of the ashes of that farm crisis. Right, and here we are, full circle, basically, um, for many small and medium, and certainly for the dairy industry, same thing happening all over again. Yeah, yeah, that and is true. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, that was. It seems to me, and I, I do not, I do not have anything like the history that you have uh, in this community, but. It seems to me that the 70s was kind of the beginning of the sort of corporate um, expansion, uh, the, you know, the consolidation of various aspects of the agricultural industry. Am I right about that? Um, that? That has sort of led us to the place that we are now? Or was that already a factor, the consolidation? It was, it was you know, at the farm level, you know, it's basically been consolidation since the 1930s. Mm. Um, but certainly accelerating in the 1960s uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so, yes, and, and in terms of uh, sort of the agribusiness side of it, um, you know, there's been concentration for a long time, but um, we're seeing, com- you know, completely exaggerated new levels of concentration, at the, especially at the farm input side. Yeah, right. You're talking about the Monsanto Bayer uh, deal that just, I think, just got. And, it's and the other and the other two big yeah. deals that were similar to with Dow yeah. Dupont and with right, and, right, and ChemChina. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, let's let's um, talk for. We're going to talk about the farm bill, but um, what did, what did you think when it went down? Like, I, I was surprised. Were you? Did you feel like the? Oh, sure, of course, this was never going to you know pass well, pass muster. What, what did you think about yes that? Yes and no. Yes and no. We we were we were certainly advocating its defeat um, mm-hmm. because the bill that came out of the House Ag Committee is um, you know, pretty much the worst 
farm bill we've ever seen. <laughs> um, and so we were Gee, we were whiz. working for it to go down yeah. and urging people to go back to the drawing board. On the other hand, it's fairly rare that the leadership of the House, you know, no matter who controls it, it's rare for the leadership to call a bill to the floor that they don't, they're not sure they have the votes for it. So we had thought that in the last 24 or 36 hours before the bill came up, they must have cut some backroom deals. And so we were nervous about it, and clearly they hadn't. (laughs) So um, they're going to possibly try again time will tell but uh, later will they have made then. will they have made changes like what what were the sticking points remind the no, audience they, of what, what were the sticking points on this they're going to do is just simply revote on the same exact proposal without really? changes and we think that you know there's a reasonable likelihood they'll have the same result what they're hoping for is that a completely different piece of legislation on immigration um, will have They'll, even if they haven't agreed on it, they will have agreed on a process that will make all the various uh, factions of the majority party happy enough with the process that they'll then decide, okay, we'll let the farm bill go forward. Hmm. We're not so sure that um, people are ready to say that a bad farm bill should be passed <laughs> you know, based on what happens on another piece of legislation entirely. Right. So. Right. We shall see. And yet, immigration is so uh, so uh, tightly tied to uh, agricultural, um, the agricultural industry. I mean, without without immigrants, nobody picks, nobody slaughters, nobody processes. I mean, right? Nobody milks. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. no, immigrant and, and labor is quite, essential. It's been quite uh, difficult to quite fathom how uh, the current administration, which had you know strong support in rural areas of yeah. the country, has managed on trade and on immigration and on ethanol to completely <laughs> offend the and go counter to the interests that um, largely backed them in the election. Yeah. So it, it's a it's a head scratcher. It is a head scratcher. And you know what's even more perplexing is um, I interviewed uh, the guy who started, of course I can't remember his name, Mike... I've forgotten his last name, but um, it was a show about six or seven weeks ago with um, the Organization for Competitive Markets. And this guy was a Trump supporter. And I said, do you think that in light of what's been happening on trade, especially, um, that the farming community will continue to support the Trump administration? And he said, yes. (laughs) Okay. All right. Vote against it's con- yourself. It's conceivable, but I don't. I don't think that's a sure thing yet, um, especially on the trade side. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think anybody's there's really. There's a lot of nervousness. Yes, and and yes, a lot of nervousness, and uh, you know, and and if these trade deals, or you know, if the NAFTA agreement is is gutted, and and farmers have no place, you know, can't sell to their biggest trading partners, and and various other things happen, um, it, you know, the economic squeeze is going to be very profound. Obviously, there'll be a lot of people going out of business, and that that, that should change their minds. Yeah. You know, there's a horrible feeling of like, okay, let the worst happen. I mean, I, that's how I feel personally. I'm just like, okay, great. Let him do something so egregious that we just have to completely swing the other way in a major way. That's what I'm hoping for. Anyway, let's talk a little bit more about um, the farm bill. So before we get there, I, I was hoping that you would explain why, you know, what the the, the subsidies, subsidies and crop insurance, why are some 
commodity crops subsidized either directly or through crop insurance, why other food crops are not subsidized. That seems very counterintuitive. Like, why would you subsidize corn and soy, but you wouldn't subsidize um, broccoli, for instance? Yeah, that's a that's a, a good question, um, and there's a kind of a long answer, but I'll try to <laughs> try to give you the short answer. So, okay, we most have of the minutes. major field crops are part of the historic farm bill commodity titles, and uh, you know that make that those crops make up the vast majority of total cropland in the country. That's true. But they also share in common the fact that they're they're non-perishable crops that are stored and marketed over a long period of time. And that's that was really the focus of the commodity programs going all the way back to the New Deal. Yeah. How, how to try to bring oversupply into control so that um, prices didn't crash and farmers go out of business. So from, from basically 1933 until 1996, in a variety of ways, the the purpose, the reason why we had commodity programs was to try to control excess production. And the government would pay farmers to reduce production in various mm-hmm. ways um, to keep prices at a steady but profitable level. Right. That all changed after 1996. And now um, you can find ag- agricultural economists and policy people who will try to say why we have commodity programs today. Um, but absent that supply control function, it's not entirely clear um, <laughs> why we still have them. Um, so that's that's a whole other matter. But to, to get back to your original question, the reason for that is those are non-perishable, stored, right. marketed over a long period of time crops, whereas your fruits and vegetables are perishable crops that have to be marketed immediately. So they're not... Um, they would ne- you could never have the same kind of commodity program for fruits and vegetables that you have for grains and I gotcha. oil seeds and cotton. So that's really the distinction. That does not mean that there aren't government programs for what we call today specialty crops. Uh, that's a term that some people like and some people don't like. <laughs> but I'll, I'll usually say fruits and vegetables just to make it clear what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, that, but there, there have been a whole variety of ways of government that the government intervenes in the fruit and vegetable markets. There's marketing orders and marketing agreements and promotion programs and um, a whole way that crops get taken off the market and put into the food the school food distribution network. Uh, all, all of we, all of those policies tend to improve the price or stabilize the price of fruits and vegetables. So there is government intervention. It's just not through a, a subsidy system. It's a different uh, setup. It's more of a marketing, uh, more right. of a marketing platform. Right. So money is spent on that as opposed to uh, paying farmers directly for for not overproducing. So. You know, that leads me to the question is like, why don't we have that program for the, I mean, don't we have that program, let me rephrase, don't we have that uh, program for dairy farmers and why are we overproducing and why is dairy in the dumps? Well, that's another really good question. (laughs) Because I did like six weeks of of interviews about dairy and I still don't quite get it. (laughs) In in, in 2013, when the last farm bill and, and into 2014, when the last farm bill was being put together, the proposal on the table from the dairy, um, the dairy farmers, dairy farmers of uh, America. You mean the big lobbying as, group? As organized nationally, 
was to both have the program we wound up with, which um, is a margin protection program. I won't go into the specifics, but it's a payment program, and uh, as well as a supply control program, and it was both things. And the the dairy industry, as opposed to dairy farmers, opposed the supply control function. And in Congress, uh, the, the then Speaker of the House, uh, John Boehner, um, personally intervened to make sure that the supply control function was left out of the final bill. Whoa. And so we we don't have that function, and therefore there's nothing um, to present to prevent surplus dairy production. Right. And um, therefore, both the payment side it would be higher is higher than it otherwise would be. And there's no real stabilization function. Right. You have just explained the mystery. <laughs> really. I mean, honestly, I, I conducted six or eight interviews uh, with dairy farmers, with lobbyists. I did a whole dive on it. That was my whole season this year because I'm ju- I was just so protect- so perplexed. Um, you know, Canada has a robust dairy industry. And, and meanwhile, dairy farmers in America are, are slitting their wrists. And I, yeah. I was just like, what the hell? Well, there is that very interesting trade connection because part of the goal of renegotiating NAFTA from the U.S. side is to try to force Canada to get rid of its supply control policy so that they're in the same boat we are, and uh, which is unfortunate if we we could learn from them more than they could learn from us. Absolutely, and yet I didn't really hear a lot of dairy farmers saying, "Oh yes, I want to control my supply." I mean, yeah, you know, no, I, it's it's become unpopular. Um, uh, you know, what once was for decades very popular has become mm-hmm. unpopular, um, in part because mega farms have gotten good at you know trying to. Squeeze, squeeze profit out of a very yeah. small margin because they're producing such huge quantities. Yeah. Um, and so that's begun, you know, that's sort of become the goal rather than maintaining a strong system of family farms and strong rural communities that go with that. Right. And so it's it's become, you know, we've we've slid towards a policy whereby maximum production of commodities is the goal as yeah. opposed to maximum uh, stabilization for family farm survival. Interesting. I mean, just fascinating. Okay, so let's let's move on, though, because we weren't really supposed to be talking about dairy. Um, (laughs) So now I want you to explain crop insurance. So is that what you were... That's a different thing entirely from even the the marketing platform that you described for fruits and vegetables, the commodity uh, subsidy pricing for... um, for um, non-perishable crops, what what is you know crop insurance seem to be taking sort of is that is that the program where farmers pay in a certain amount and then they're supposed to get protection when their crops fail or or something happens like a fire or something? And I'm right. thinking about the wildfires, for example, last year that burned up a lot of um, farmland in in Kansas and Colorado and Texas. Um, is that that's where crop insurance kicks in? Yeah, so we've we've had crop insurance in this country for a long, you know, federal crop insurance for a very mm-hmm. long time. It's only become a really big deal in the last fifteen to twenty years, um, and that's because before it, the farmer, you know, paid the majority of the premium 
for the insurance, and the taxpayer kicked in a small amount, uh-huh. and it was yield insurance. So if you uh-huh. lost your crop or your crop was damaged, um, that's what the insurance was for. That all started to change, as particularly in the year 2000, which was the major crop insurance legislation that passed Congress and became law and um, introduced the idea of revenue insurance, um, mm. which also insured against price swings and completely changed the subsidy formula so that the taxpayer paid the majority of the premium and the and the farmer paid the minority. So it sort of flipped who paid the mm-hmm. premium, most of the premium. And so that um, uh, the the goal of that was to get more farmers to take out insurance with the in part with the thought that commodity programs might eventually go away and we needed a replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not been borne out in reality, but that was that was openly talked about at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the with the more lucrative deal and with the uh, ability to insure yourself against price swings as well as yield problems, um, it obviously became much more popular. And now yeah. you have the vast majority of farmers that do insure um, by acres. Most of that is the same crops as the commodity crops, since those are the majority of acres anyway. But uh, crop insurance, unlike the commodity programs, are also open to fruits and vegetables and, uh, to a limited extent, livestock and dairy. But that's mm-hmm. fairly limited so far. Yeah, interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the platform um, for NSAC uh, in terms of what the farm bill should include. And so you guys on your website, you say that um, your platform includes conservation and stewardship, and that would be things like, um, you know, cover crops and no-till farming techniques and things like that. Am I right? And, yeah, mm-hmm. that's but right. I hear from I, I I've heard from farmers and other people in the industry that that a lot of times uh, either it's impractical for them to um, have a cover crop in, for example, because the the way the cover crop grows, like it, it, the timing is wrong for putting in your next crop. There's that problem. There's also the problem of how much it costs in terms of both um, actual seed and the labor and you know fossil fuels involved. And so I'm I guess my question is is like. Will a new will a new farm bill address some of those financial uh, and um, logistical concerns that a lot of farmers have that have maybe prevented them from uh, advancing in those directions? Right, right, and that's why we have what we call working lands conservation programs. They they are relatively new. They've existed mm-hmm. since 1996. Um, before that, we only had conservation programs that took land out of production and put them into conserving uses. And we still have the latter, but um, part of NSAC's mission over time was to, to create working lands conservation programs to get farmers to do things like cover crops and crop rotations and advanced nutrient and pest management activities. So uh, we've, we've succeeded, um, you know, in part beyond our wildest dreams such that now roughly 60% of farm bill conservation dollars are for working lands programs. Oh, that's great. And um, there are two, two basic flavors. There's a program called Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which basically shares the, the public shares the cost of initial adoption of conservation activities with farmers. And then there's the Conservation Stewardship Program, which is, encourages farmers to go sort of beyond the basic level to more advanced environmental production systems. 
And uh, we support both programs, and we think they're both uh, vitally important. The House Farm Bill that has been defeated but is going to be voted on again at the end of the month um, completely does away with the conservation stewardship program. No way. And, um, just keeps the, the environmental quality incentives program and more, just as importantly, cuts total funding for working lands programs by $5 billion over the next um, period of time. So we that was one of our strongest uh, points of disagreement with the House bill, not that there aren't many others. <laughs> but Ferd, what, what, who's, in whose best interest is that? Like, who is making that kind of decision? It um, is, is a perplexing question because there are over 70 million acres enrolled in the Conservation Stewardship Program. It's the biggest conservation program by acres that we've ever had in the history of the country. Uh-huh. And um, it's pretty, you know, in terms there's acres enrolled in all 50 states, and it's pretty um, distributed uh, across the country. Uh, so it's really hard to see. And, and, you know, two to three times as many farmers try to enroll each year in the program as there are acres available to um, be enrolled. Whoa. So the demand is high. The, the actuality is big and big, uh, you know, in terms of the landscape size of the program. So why would the House then try to get rid of the program? It's, I think the this this will sound too much like a Washington D.C. answer, but I think um, it's probably the the true answer, which is the House Republican leadership views getting rid of this program as something that they can then trade with the Senate when the Senate eventually does its bill, which won't get rid of the program, and say, okay, if you want to keep the program, then you got to give us something else, like what we uh, want on immigration or something like that. Yeah, whether that's you know destroying program or, um, you know, giving more larger subsidies to big farms or whatever. Oh, my God. I'm just, I'm like literally nauseous. In fact, (laughs) Dave, let's take a quick sponsor drop (laughs) while I recover myself after that answer. Um, But we'll be right back with Ferd Hefner from NSAC, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. We got a lot more to talk about. uh, So stay tuned, folks. Thanks for listening. about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com.
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm chatting today with Ferd Hefner, who is the, um, uh, well, I guess you're now the mentor um, and advisor for the uh, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Um, and no doubt you're on to, you know, other worthy things. I, I, you'll have to tell us about that when you get to the point where at the end of the program, I, I have you sh- promote yourself shamelessly and, and we'll talk about what you're doing. <laughs> okay. But, um, but um, I, you know, I'm still like, I'm still kind of um, absorbing that last incredible uh, revelation about how politics works, which I think nobody really, you know, we never really think about the horse trading that goes on somehow, uh, you know, or maybe it, it's always gone on. I know that's true. Like everybody always talks about backroom deals and politics, but um, just sort of, ugh, I don't know. It was just very discouraging. <laughs> um, so anyway, let, but let us go on because there was something, there were lots of really interesting points about your platform, which I read. Um, it's 126 pages long, people. I just want you to know how much I love you that I read this thing. Um, <laughs> there was my Saturday. Um so uh, you guys, um, you had a, a, a bit about the impact of sequestration on program funding in the Farm Bill. I had never heard of that before. And I, I thought it was so strumifying that it would, might be worth chatting about for just a second. So, so tell us about what, what, are they, what does that mean? What are they doing when they sequester funding for certain programs? Yeah, yeah it's kind of inside baseball, but it has really <laughs> powerful effects. So yeah. when they reached the budget deal um, back Several years ago, they, um, in, in in order to get a deal done, they promised fiscal conservatives that should Congress be unable to reach certain levels of funding, then automatic budget cuts would occur. So it's kind of a lazy man's approach to budgeting. Rather than making the tough decisions yourself, you sort of put in place ahead of time, uh, automatic process that automatically chops money out of the budget across the board. And um, several times since that original budget deal, when other funding mechanisms weren't working out for other pieces of legislation, they said, oh, we'll just add to sequ- add more years to sequestration. So now it's with us um, through uh, most of the uh, 2020s um, because they keep adding to it. And it it impacts a, a wide variety across all of government, um, but in the farm bill in particular, it affects the commodity programs, which we've been mm-hmm. talking about, but also the conservation programs and some of the smaller programs that help fruit and vegetable producers and others. And so each year, and, and, unless and until Congress removes sequestration, um, you know, Congress could say, well, this program is going to be a billion dollars a year, and then sequestration comes along and cuts six, seven, eight percent out of that each year um, on a kind of an automatic basis. And I will say hmm. that most members of Congress have long since forgotten <laughs> that sequestration is happening because they'll have de- debates about funding levels as if the funding levels they're talking about are the real ones. <laughs> the real ones actually are a minus the sequester that happens every year. So it's bad policy. It's bad government. You know, Congress should be able to make the decisions rather than say, well, we're going to create this sort of invisible (laughs) budget chopping machine that, you know, then we'll pretend we don't have any control over. Oh, that's sequestration. That's not us. Well, Mm -hmm. it is them. They're the ones that decided to put it in place. Yeah, right, right. And then you wonder also, like, I mean, 
is there some some industry you know advantage to the like I don't know. Somebody is getting something for this. <laughs> it ain't farmers. That's all I know. Anyway, <laughs> um, you had some other programs that I thought were worth talking about too. Um, the agricultural land easement and the agricultural conservation easement programs. Why, why are those important? Why should we be knowing about them and supporting them? Yeah. So, you know, easements are, are legal documents that allow you to preserve certain values over a long period of time. And there are two major types within the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. There are wetland easements, which um, help landowners, mostly farmers, to um, restore wetlands where they used to be but had been drained years back. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it's actually one of the principal mechanisms we have as a nation to try to reach no net loss of wetlands. Um, because these restored acres, we own, we have almost three million acres of them now um, through this program. So that that's really really important for a whole variety of reasons: biodiversity and wildlife and water carbon sequestration. And, yeah, right. Sure. Uh, pollution control. So yeah. it, they serve multiple purposes. The other ones are called agricultural land easements, and it's primarily for farmland preservation in areas of the country that um, have strong development pressure that could convert farms into shopping centers and housing and roads and whatnot. Um, It also covers grasslands that, um, you know, more out west in particular, where they could be at risk for conversion to, you know, ski chalets or whatever. So important to try to keep as much um, quality farmland in farming as we can. And so it's a program that does both of those, and they were joined together. They used to be separate programs. They were joined together in the 2014 Farm Bill, uh. which which was fine. We didn't have a problem with the consolidation, but when they consolidated them, they also cut the funding in half. And so a big thing for this Farm Bill is going to be trying to put that money back so that um, it's operating at more full strength. That's one of the few good things the House Farm Bill did. It did actually restore a good chunk of that money that they took away in 2014. So um, that was one of the positives. Well, let's hope they they retain that in the next iteration of it. Um, So we talked a little bit about setting limits on production of certain crops and dairy to stabilize prices. Is Is that a place where the Farm Bill has a lot of power, or is that something that is completely separate from... You know those kinds of regulations would that that would not be in the farm bill, would it? Well, it would be historically it would be, but um, you know we've basically surrendered most of those tools. In mm-hmm. fact, the, about the only major tool that's left in the toolbox is the conservation reserve program, which takes farmland out of production for ten years at a time um, through a rental payment contract with the government, and uh, there that that is a big issue for this farm bill. The current level of the Conservation Reserve Program is 24 million acres, and there are members who are trying to push that up closer to 30 million acres. Uh-huh. Um, the trouble is, you know, that's that's debatable one way or the other from the standpoint of conservation purposes, but from the standpoint of trying to get prices up, you know, even if they moved it to 26 or 28 million acres, it would have pretty negligible impact on prices. So. Mm-hmm you would really have to have a much larger um, reserve program like that to impact prices in any significant way. Didn't we used to have, just to speak for a second about the stabilization of prices, didn't we used to have like a national granary 
I remember reading a book that included information about, I think it was Eric Holt Jimenez's book, um, a Foodie's Guide to Capitalism. Did you read that by any chance? No, I didn't. Very good book. And um, anyway, I, I think it was there that he, he describes like at a certain point, you know, earlier part of the 20th century, there was, and up until quite late in the 20th century, there was something called the National Granary. And that's that was how they stabilized commodity prices, was that they would just have a grain reserve. Right. There were two, there were two principal uh, mechanisms um, through the second part of the 20th century. One was uh, annual acreage reductions um, mm-hmm. called various things over various pieces of time. But basically, your government payment uh, was contingent on removing X percent of your farm from production. And so that was, and that was annually determined by the Department of Agriculture, looked at, looking at supply and demand functions. And then the other one was exactly what you say: the the, the grain reserve function. And from 1977 through 1996, we had uh, farmer-owned grain reserve, slightly different than the ones from earlier decades. This was controlled by the farmer, but at um, at price levels. There was a price level at which you could put grain into the reserve, and there was a price level at which you could take grain out of the reserve, which had the effect of moderating price swings, so uh-huh. that they were they would swing within that band, but not they wouldn't crash real low or right. or, or hit, go really high. because yeah. of course so that has it. It was a good, on. you know, strong policy from both the farmer perspective and the mm-hmm. consumer perspective. But by the mid 1990s. Um, they, um, the majority opinion in, in Congress and, you know, to some extent in the farming community was, uh, we don't want to do that anymore. We want all-out maximum production come what may. And as a result, we're, you know, still paying 15 to $20 billion a year between commodity programs and crop insurance um, for, the, for the luxury of having wide price swings. <laughs> I could put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and we laugh. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, this is just like, you just feel like this whole thing is just run amok. I mean, like, you know, right off the rails with no rhyme or reason um, to a lot of these policy maneuvers, um, at least to my mind. I mean, I, you know, I I, I, I just can't, I, I, I don't even understand how this benefits even the big, you know, agri-industries so much, you know, like the Cargills or the Archer Daniel Midlands or whatever, you know, like how how do these massive price swings, you know, how are they good for them? You know, they're the big grain producers. I don't really understand. I mean, they get the crop subsidies, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there there were definitely problems with the with the set aside system in terms of, you know, farmers not necessarily taking their best quality land out of production, and it, therefore mm-hmm. it didn't have quite the effect that it might have otherwise. But also because if if it was predictable that our set-asides would be at a certain level for a period of years, then other countries would increase their production and I see. Uh, sort of nullify the effect. So that there were problems, but, um, uh, you know, from the grain trade perspective, having everybody go all out just gives you more options. Your, right. your business is based on volume, not on, not on price. So. Right, right, right. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about SNAP, um, just because that is a big part of the farm bill. Um, and it doesn't look like uh, it's, well, let's, it looks like SNAP is going to su- supplemental nutrition assistance programs, otherwise known as food stamps. Um, 
that there will not be certainly any increase in funding. Um, and in fact, I, um, I, I, I said this in my outline, but I, a, few, a couple of years ago before the election, I was sort of trolling around Congress, House of Representatives, looking for guests for my radio show. And I happened upon a young person named Thomas Massey, who, is, uh, who was the representative, Republican representative from Kentucky. And I said something about, you know, um, controlling the food industry or, you know, how do you feel about the food industry, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, we just let the food industry do what they want. I mean, they, you know, they're, you know, they're like, they're doing a great job of feeding people. And I said, well, wait a minute. They're not really because there's so many, you know, 40 million food insecure people in the United States. That's not, that doesn't seem like that's really working out so well. And he was literally, I mean, he was shocked. He was shocked to the point where he was like, well, I don't want to be on your radio program. And he literally turned around, walked away from me. But the the thing that really struck me was that that seemed to be news to him. And as a result, I, I, you know, I've been wondering to myself ever since, like, do these people actually know what is happening to their constituents? And what can we do to help them understand why supplemental nutrition assistance programs and WIC and, and all the other safety net things are so important and why they need to vote for those in the farm bill? I just don't understand how you can turn your back on that. What, how, what do you think the farm bill can do to, or how can we, how can we explain? <laughs> how do we imagine to get getting them to to vote yes on further funding? Yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> you're defeated already. Yes, right now <laughs> on improved benefit levels is is beyond the scope of what is possible immediately. Though ultimately there do need to be benefit improvements, it's um, fairly meager uh, assistance at this point. But um, the the big question for this go round is whether or not the program will be basically kept as is, with maybe a few minor tweaks. That's where the Senate is going, or where the House is is you know major cutbacks both through the um, elimination of states' abilities to allow um, sort of streamlined um, enrollment procedures uh, that are really important for uh, making sure that people that need to be on the rolls are on the rolls, and then the work requirement, which has been the one that's gotten the, the most attention. Yeah. Um, there are work requirements now. This is for a very small slice of the food stamp population that's, you know, adults, Without, uh, without dependents, without young children, right? Um, it's you know less than ten percent of the total uh, population on food stamps, but that's where the House majority is, you know, really, really focused, and it's part of their bigger effort that they put under the heading of welfare reform, mm -hmm. where um, they, you know, try to make the point that here we have an economy, at least from an unemployment standpoint, that's going great guns. There shouldn't be reasons for able-bodied adults without young children to not have a job. And, and that's sort of their mantra. And um, to the point where that overrides the other mantra that is that they also normally have, which is not to create big new federal bureaucracies, <laughs> but in the House Farm Bill, they're proposing to um, take the savings from these various cuts to food stamps, which are estimated to take two to three million people off the rolls and put that money into a new state-by-state -state 
bureaucracy to to do job training for SNAP recipients. Um, so that's sort of the state of play. Um, the I think the true political fact of life is that the uh, you know the the Senate isn't even debating these policies that are in the House Farm Bill because they know that the Farm Bill won't pass in the Senate if they did, um, just because of the ratios between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. So at the end of the day, those policies aren't going to be in a final Farm Bill that clears the U.S. Senate and gets to the White House. And therefore, you know, just from a practical standpoint, the House leadership is willing to have the Farm Bill gone down to defeat several weeks ago, and potentially the same thing happens again later in June in order to prove a point, I guess, from their standpoint about welfare reform that doesn't stand any chance of ever becoming law in this Congress. So, I don't know. It... uh, for all the talk that they do about we got to pass the farm bill because farmers need certainty, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. are doing everything in their power to make sure that we don't get a farm bill and farmers don't get the certainty that right. they proclaim. So it's 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 an interesting thing, and it's compounded by the fact that Speaker of the House Paul Ryan is also retiring yeah. from Congress at the end of this year, and he said uh, in the weeks leading up to the farm bill defeat on the House floor that. You know, he, he he got the helped get the big tax cut for wealthy Americans through the House, and the last big thing he wanted to do before he retired was to get these work requirements on SNAP, which was mind-boggling. That of all the you know potential goals one could have yes. for one last one's last years in Congress, that that would be the number one thing. But that's what yeah. he said. Punish the poor. So much fun. <clears throat> Let's talk about um, farm to fork networks because you guys, you know, are committed to fostering more opportunity. And and so, you know, in the ten years that I've been doing this program, we've <clears throat> I have often spoken about the lack of infrastructure and the need to re-regionalize the food system. These are not original thoughts to me. These are my guests who tell me these things, and then I retain them, um, <clears throat> just as I will probably retain one or two facts from you. But you know, I don't see um, I don't see anyone growing, particularly invested in growing those networks of infrastructure like processing uh, facilities, warehousing, aggregation, you know, centers and so forth. And I'm just wondering, like, even though we've been talking about this for 10 years, is it happening? Is that happening? Or, Or am I missing it? Or is it still not happening? And if not, what can we do to sort of foster that? Um, as we move forward, because clearly it's going to be on the the onus will be on communities and farmers, and certainly not expecting any help from government. Yeah, no, I think it it, it is happening. It just um, needs to happen at a at a bigger and uh, more accelerated pace to really have a fully functioning sort of regional food economy. Yeah. So you know, so our, from our vantage point as federal policy wonks, for lack of a better term. You know, we think of it in terms of what can the government do that that would help accelerate and sort of uh, prove that the concept uh, will work and is is viable. So one thing that we did long time ago, relatively speaking, all the way back in 2000, was um, help Congress create a program called the Value-Added Producer Grant Program, uh, 
mm-hmm. kind of unique thing where the government gives grants to farm farmers or groups of farmers that are organizing uh, a, a value-added business, so taking their what they're producing on their farm and making it a consumer-ready product. And some right. of these do, some people do this on their farm, like, for instance, a dairy farmer who has their own um, uh, dairy processing right on right on site, uh, perhaps with a farm store or in-town store that goes with it, um, is an example of that. It also applies to farmer co-ops that are where you have a group of farmers getting together um, to perhaps market grass-fed beef or pastured-raised hogs or whatever the case mm-hmm. might be. Just using those as, as examples, so it's been uh, it's been around for a while. It's never had super robust funding, but we've kept it alive through multiple farm bills. Um, the USDA's own Economic Research Service um, just came out with a report several weeks ago where they looked back through all the people who have gotten value-added producer grants and said, how are these businesses doing relative to small businesses in general? Mm-hmm. And uh, their results were that um, those businesses that had value-added grants are doing much better, much more likely to survive, much more likely to expand over time. Um, so we're we're really pleased with that. Yeah. Um, it's just one of the many programs, government programs like that, that we spend a lot of time working on. Again, the House Farm Bill <laughs> that got defeated um, completely left the value-added producer grant program high and dry. No not, way. not a dime of funding. We expect that to be different when the Senate does its bill, um, and that will be another thing that we're fighting for in conference. And there's a whole range of these local and regional food programs um, that are part of the Farm Bill that uh, we hope will be preserved and expanded where possible. And are these things that people can call up their congressional representative and say, I want you to support this in the Farm Bill? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we've put a, a lot of those proposals together in a bill um, you know, so that they're all located in one place. We, we, we often help members of Congress put together bills that they're not bills that are going to go through committee and become law. They're bills that we put out there to say, hey, here's the kind of thing that should be in the next farm bill. Right. And so um, there is a local farms bill um, in both the House and the Senate that contain a lot of these ideas. How much of these guys reading this stuff, do you think? Is it all just their staff? And then their staff says, "Okay, this looks good. This looks bad." Uh, you know. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's certainly a heavy staff function, um, and that's important for constituents to know because the best grassroots lobbyists are the ones that can develop relationships with those key staff people mm-hmm. over time. Um, it's it's you know it's fine at the broader level to you know sort of click on things on websites or or to put in the occasional call to the receptionist. Um, and those are worth something, but the the grassroots calls that are really worth a lot are the ones that are actually going to staff people who over time learn who you are because you bother them from time to time. Right, politely. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, Ferd, we have reached the moment in this program where you promote yourself shamelessly, your organization, <laughs> and whatever else you want to talk about, like... Um, you know, people should learn more about National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition at website. Yeah. Say website. Yes. So, um, for sure, uh, 
National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, I think, is an organization people should know about. The mm. website is sustainableagriculture.net. We have lots of good information on lots. there, including things of how to take action at the grassroots level with members of Congress. Um, a lot of great publications. We have one that's a grassroots guide to federal farm and food programs where you can get sort of quick, easy-to-read information about a whole variety of federal programs um, that could be a benefit. We have some guides that are very specific to certain programs. Um, they're all on our publications page on the on the website. So I'd call people's attention to that. And, um, and, it, and if people out there listening are part of an organization, a farmer organization or a food or conservation organization, and... Um, interested in federal policy reform but not yet a member of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, I'd uh, encourage people to um, get in touch with our grassroots people here on staff, and they'd be happy to talk to you about membership. So, Fantastic. I'm ready to sign up, even though I don't have a farm. <laughs> for cool. Thank you so, so much for having me. And what are you doing? Before I let you go, what are you doing now that you're no longer actually on the day-to-day -day running the, the organization? Do you have a brand new role that you want to talk about? Yeah, I'm, I'm now the, the senior advisor. It's it's like you mentioned before, some mentoring and training, but um, also sort of shooting some, filling in some gaps here and there. Um, and um, I'm also, <laughs> because the last 30 years has not given me a, a moment to think about, um, you know, recording or archiving the history of <laughs> all this policy change. I'm going to spend some time doing that, too, before I bow out of the scene so uh, it's uh, and some special projects um, uh, one of which is helping a dialogue between USDA leadership and very small and small meat processing plants around the country huh. who are trying to really engage the pasture raised and grass fed markets um, so that's it's fun to be able to have some time to do projects that otherwise I wouldn't have had time to do before yeah so you must have gone to Greg Gunthorpe's farm in Indiana. Right? I have indeed. <laughs> I love that guy. He's like, I yeah. keep trying to get him on the show because I think he's such an example. He's such an amazing dude. But anyway, maybe yeah, next Greg's year. Greg's terrific. He's terrific. Thank you so much for joining me today. For This has been a wonderful conversation. I, I look forward to having you on again. I hope you'll join me in the fall when I come back from my little summer break. Okay. Um, <laughs> and my thanks to Alaska Seafood for sponsoring this show and for supporting the Heritage Radio Network. And, of course, to the wonderful engineer and, and light of my life, Dave Tatishore. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, we'll see you um, sometime soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.